Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. Thanks for downloading more than 300,000 of our podcasts. We'd love it if you took a minute to tell us what you like or don't like about them and what you'd like to see us do next. If you're an educator and you are using our podcasts in your courses, please let us know how. I know some of you are, as I've seen them on course syllabi out there. So, let us know. Go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcasts and click the Contact Us button. We'd be thrilled to hear from you. The rhythm of life in Western New York continues with the opening of Rotary Rink, our free downtown ice skating destination where it's possible to turn a few figure eights and then take the train down Main Street to the birthplace of the supremely non-nutritious but exceedingly popular delicacy called the chicken wing. At the world famous Anchor Bar, your wings can be accompanied by live jazz on the weekends. I'm Peter Sabota. If you haven't looked into the food stamps program lately, you might want to give a listen to the work of our guest, Dr. Luke Schaefer. In this episode, Dr. Schaefer discusses the effects of the United States' largest means-tested income support program, now known as the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, that was formerly known as the Food Stamp Program. Research attempting to assess the effects of major public programs has traditionally been difficult because of the serious selection issues related to program participation. However, recent breakthroughs in research methods have allowed us to better measure these effects, and results suggest that SNAP, as Dr. Schaefer says, for many people the only game left in town, improves food security among the participating households as well as non-food material well-being. Dr. Schaefer concludes his discussion with an invitation for both consumers and other researchers to contact him with their direct experience of this program. H. Luke Schaefer, Ph.D., is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Social Work. His research on the effects of public programs has been published in Social Service Review and Health Services Research and he has been funded by the U.S. Census Bureau and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Dr. Schaefer has been a visiting scholar at the Institute for Research on Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Schaefer was interviewed by telephone by our always tall and dynamic Charles Sims, clinical associate professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Good morning, Dr. Schaefer. Good morning. I'm very interested in this discussion on food, particularly I've been doing some reading on it recently. And I'm curious as to how you got interested in your work. Sure. So my research mainly focuses around low-wage working families and the public policies that are directed towards them, that support them. And one of the big transformations in the social safety net, such as it is, has been an expansion in food stamps, which is now called the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP. 
So just in the efforts to pursue my research agenda, it became clear that really understanding this program, how people use it, the impacts of it was going to be critical. So that's really sort of started me down this line of research maybe about two years ago, and uh, it's continuing on today. Interesting. Are the old food stamp program and SNAP essentially the same program, or are there some basic differences that people ought to be aware of? It's exactly the same program. They changed the name, I think, in an effort to get away from the stigma of food stamps, the name. The main difference that has taken place in about the last decade is that it's no longer a program of stamps in virtually the entire country benefits are delivered in the form of electronic benefit transfer. It looks pretty much like a credit card. And so the benefits are actually loaded on to a person's card every month when they take it to the grocer and they can swipe it just like they would a credit card. Of course, the items that they can get are limited to food. I see. Do we know how many people are on the SNAP program? Mm -hmm. So right now we have about 46 million people on SNAP every single month. So that's uh, sort of the running average at this point. That's about a little bit over 14% of the U.S. population, about one out of every seven people. And we spend about $75 billion on the program. That's what we spent in fiscal year 2011. That's up considerably from before the Great Recession, but it makes it our primary near-cash means-tested program in the U.S., just to put it in a little bit of context. There are only about 4.4 million folks on TANF. That's about 1.6% of the population, and the expenditures on TANF are only a small fraction of what we spend on SNAP every year. It sounds like the roles have gotten significantly larger then. Yeah, SNAP has followed a really interesting trajectory. So our listeners may know about the 1996 welfare reform that really fundamentally transformed our means-tested aid in this country. And that was coupled with a lot of other changes that we made, including expansion of benefits for the working poor. And you could really actually, in some ways, put SNAP in that category. The SNAP rolls actually fell during the late 1990s, probably driven partly because of the economy, but also probably because there was a lot of confusion as people were being moved off cash assistance as a transition from the entitlement program AFDC to TANF. But then if you think back about the 2000s, this last decade, it could be called a lot of things. It could also be called the SNAP decade because the roles just expanded throughout the entire decade. They grew by about 60% from 2001 to 2007, they've grown about another 60% since then. So we have more folks on the program than we've ever had before. Part of the reason for that is a lot of things that we did to liberalize eligibility requirements. So one thing that we know really matters for whether or not people actually stay on the program is called recertification periods. How often do people have to go back and sort of recertify their income, recertify that they're eligible? And in in the 1990s, there had been a push to collapse that down to about three months so that a lot more people had to go every three months to recertify. And a lot of people sort of fall off, whether because they don't understand or their lives are too busy 
they tend to fall off the rolls at the time of recertification. Well, a lot of states now have extended those recertification periods to six, nine, or 12 months. So it keeps people on for longer periods. We also did a lot of things to make it easier to apply for SNAPs. And these mainly come through the domain of categorical eligibility. So if you were to go in and ask for any kind of help at a DHS office, Department of Human Services or Public Aid, whatever it's called in your state, you'd really be uh, fast-tracked to get on SNAP. At least that's what the law says. And this allows a lot of states to reduce the limits on people's assets, whereas there were you know, stricter limits on uh, what kind of assets you could have in a bank account, could you own a house. Those have really been liberalized. And as a result of all these changes, a big part of this increase that we've seen in the last decade has been among the working poor. So we're not talking about the poorest of the poor who are seeing big increases in their probability of getting on SNAP. A really big proportion of them were already on SNAP, and it fell during the 1990s, and it's come back to about where it was. But among the working poor, we see a lot more uh, SNAP participation. Families who are working, have somebody working full-time on a regular basis who still need SNAP to make ends meet. Just to give you a sense of what the SNAP benefit is, for the average SNAP benefit for a household is about $284, but if you're a family of three, you would get about $526 every month in 2012. And that's another way that SNAP has become bigger. It's part of the ARA, the economic stimulus passed by the Congress and signed by President Obama. We actually increased SNAP benefits by about 13 to 15%, and that took effect in 2009. So that's also been sort of a big income increase for families in a way. So it sounds like SNAP has been really helpful in ensuring that individuals get food, or not only food, but the access to proper or a good nutritional level in what they get. Yeah, I think the limits on exactly what kind of food people spend their SNAP dollars on, they're relatively weak. But in getting to the first point, there's no doubt that SNAP has played an important role in, as a safety net. You might say, if you think about a program that catches people when they fall, so if you're going along as a low-wage worker, you're trying to make ends meet, maybe you lose your job. In a lot of ways, SNAP is the only game left in town. We've pretty much gotten rid of our cash assistance program. It's just this tiny amount of people on it less than 2% of the whole U.S. population. So SNAP's really all that's left. And uh, for better or for worse, the federal government has decided to really increase the resources that are spent on SNAP. Now, there's some talk now that we can get into a little bit later about possibilities of retrenching the program going forward. But as of right now, we spend far more on SNAP than we ever have in the past. We have far more people on it, and it's far easier to get on it than it ever was. Now, if folks have access to food, for lack of a better term right now, through SNAP, does that open up or free up other resources for other kinds of things? Exactly. So this is the question that has in the past and really continues to keep me up at night. The question is, how much do people actually use SNAP to pay for their food? Now, the benefits that they receive are really, they're limited to food. They can only go in and buy food with the benefits but especially when you think about a lot of this expansion has been among the working poor. And really, most of these families have some forms of income that they were probably spending some part of on food prior to going on SNAP. 
you know, there's a very real possibility that they might reallocate a lot of the money that they were already spending on food to something else. So, for example, let's say you were spending $300, your family of three, you were spending $350 on food every month, and you were just barely scraping by. We know that ramen noodles are the staple of the desperately poor in the U.S., and you get on SNAP, and you get a benefit of $526. Are you then going to keep the entire $350 that you were already spending on food, or are you going to reallocate those dollars to something else? And so that's what I think is probably true, that people will reallocate a lot of those dollars somewhere else. So in the paper that I have with my colleague, Ilo Gutierrez, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Material Hardship Among Low-Income Households, particularly with children. We were interested particularly in households with children. To what extent does SNAP reduce hunger? And to what extent does it reduce other material hardships like the possibility of falling behind on your rent or your utilities, which might ultimately lead to eviction or gas cut off? What about the probability of not seeking medical care? I was wondering if you could kind of summarize some of your major findings, if that's possible. Sure. The thing that's tricky about this, it would seem really, in when I started out, it seemed really straightforward. You know, of course, SNAP is going to reduce these material hardships. We'll just take some nationally representative data, and we'll see who's on SNAP, and we'll see who's sort of in the same income bracket. We'll control for some things and see what happens. But I was faced with the same conundrum that researchers have been faced with for a long time, which is, when you look at SNAP benefits, when you just do a regular old sort of compare people who look alike on your observable factors, the people who are on SNAP actually look a lot worse than the people who aren't. They tend to have uh, higher levels of food insecurity. They tend to be more likely to fall behind on their rent and their gas and electricity bills. So we have this conundrum and it really all comes down to selection issues, right? So in any data set, you have things like income, you have things like education that you can control for, race and ethnicity, family structure. But there's a whole lot more that's happening in the lives of people. Social workers know, right, these sort of observable facts in data sets don't really capture the experience of people. And there's something about the people who are going on SNAP that makes them worse off than the families who sort of look comparable but aren't. And you might imagine that sort of being hungry might be a major reason why people are driven to go on SNAP. So what we do in this paper is we use a couple of different techniques. We bring in some external information. Like I mentioned the recertification periods, right? They got really short, and that affects who's on SNAP, and then they got really long again. So you can use that information in a statistical environment and try to use that information to predict who would be on SNAP and who wouldn't be based simply on that external information. You know, try to capture the people who are sort of coming on and coming off because of that information. Some states had fingerprinting. Some states still do, but it's actually fewer states now uh, than did. And you might imagine that being fingerprinted sort of affects people's willingness to go on SNAP. They think, they're treating me like a criminal. I don't want to be on this. So we try to capture that information. And then we also use a simultaneous equations model. And basically what that does is it looks for correlation between the two states. So it looks for correlation between being hungry and being on SNAP in the error terms. So this is sort of the things that are unaccounted for in the model. 
and it simulates them at the same time. And this gets around some of our limitations in a regular regression format. So that all said, what we find is, I think, pretty interesting. We find that being on SNAP for low-income households with kids, so these are households below 150% of poverty, reduces food insecurity, so that's fairly comparable to hunger. It's sort of a set of questions that the Census Bureau asks. It reduces that by about 13 percentage points. That's about actually a 41% drop in food insecurity from being on SNAP. So that's a pretty big effect. It actually appears to have a bigger effect on the risk of, we have this catch-all question that just asks, you know, have you had trouble meeting your essential expenses? And we find that it has about a 28.8 percentage point decrease. That's about a 60% drop in the probability of falling behind on your essential expenses. So when you break that open, you've got, you know, did you fall behind on your rent? It's about a 7 percentage point drop. Did you fall behind on your utilities? It's about a 15% drop. So the results really suggest that SNAP is having a big impact on the material hardship of households, that they're doing a lot better when they get on it. And then further, it really makes it look like people are pretty evenly spreading maybe even allocating more than half of their actual benefit. And remember, this is on average. So you have some families who don't have anything. They're probably spending more on food maybe. But on the whole, you know, it looks like people are allocating maybe more than half of their benefit to non-food essential expenses. I should have said that uh, the data that we use for this is the Survey of Income and Program Participation. It's one of the surveys that's conducted regularly by the Census Bureau, and it actually tracks the same families over three to four-year periods and has a reputation for being particularly good at capturing income and also program participation among the poor. So you had the opportunity to see people over time as opposed to a point in time. Yeah, and in this paper, we actually just do a little bit of longitudinal work, but it's mainly across-sectional. But in some other papers that we're doing, we're taking a look at what predicts a family going on SNAP. What are the factors that drive people on the SNAP? And it looks like it really is a matter of experiencing economic shocks. So when people are going along and they lose a job, they're really likely to go on SNAP. People are going along and there's a divorce in the family or a major family composition change. These are things that are really driving the likelihood that people will go on SNAP. So in that way, as I was saying, it's acting as a safety net. Really, you might think of it as the last strand of the safety net. Now, interestingly, when they get back in that job or families who go from being in a single mother household to getting married, it's not as likely that they leave SNAP. So, you know, SNAP sort of responds to these negative shocks, but there's a less of an association between having a positive shock and going off SNAP. So it's sort of continuing on, continuing to serve people over a longer term. So it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly or I'm thinking about this correctly, that it serves almost like a stabilizing function? Yeah, exactly. So we have a set of analyses that sort of look at families in the 12 months before they go on SNAP and the 12 months after, and this is really a longitudinal design. And we see that their food consumption starts to fall right as they go on SNAP, and then you can see sort of like the safety net kicking in, and it continues to drop, but it stabilizes, and it sort of slowly goes up. 
usually after about a 12-month period, it still hasn't gone back up to where it was. So it's not completely neutralizing the shock. But just as you said, I think it's acting as a stabilizing force. Okay. I do have one more question. Policy is always a major issue, particularly today, but in social work in general. And I'm wondering if you're thinking about how your research might impact or be impactful on policy or policy development going forward. I think an important takeaway for me is I think I'm speaking about all the positive things that SNAP does. It's got to be put in the context of the rest of the safety net. There's just really not a lot else out there. So in that way, it's really the only game in town. And so obviously we've had these sort of unprecedented rise in the SNAP roles. We've had an unprecedented rise in SNAP spending. I think we can probably expect that to go down. It'll go down as a function of the economy improving if the economy ever improves. But there's started to be quite a bit more sort of discussion at the federal as well as the state level in sort of retrenching some of these elements. So in my own state in Michigan, we've reinstituted the asset test because we had the singular example where a family won the lottery for a big amount and then failed to get off SNAP like in the next month. And uh, there's no doubt that that is not a good use of our resources to be serving families who have had a tremendous windfall. But in any program this big, those sorts of things are bound to happen. And it's unclear that we should really base policy on them. So I think there's a lot of things under discussion. There's talk. A lot of states are thinking about reinstituting the asset test, reinstituting biometric requirements, shortening the recertification periods. And sort of more aggressively, as you look at something like the Ryan budget that has been passed in the House, that includes a very significant decrease in expenditures in SNAP, really, really lowering our commitment to that program in the long term. And if we do these things, they're going to have significant effects, and they're going to extend beyond food as well. And so I think we need to be cognizant of that as we go forward. I think that's an excellent point because I think sometimes people think about these programs. It's only an issue around food, as important as that is, but we don't necessarily or people don't necessarily think about its other impacts in other areas or other parts of the lives of those families. Exactly. I think on the other side, as people, advocates who are pro-SNAP, I think it's also important to remember the context that we, in the economic stimulus, we did increase benefits and we have increased our commitment. If we judged sort of the strength of SNAP on what we spend on it and how many people are served relative to what we've done in the past, this is not a program that's been decimated. This is a program that's been increased many times over. So I think that that has to be taken into account as policymakers continue to think about the future of SNAP. Okay. Thank you. As we draw to a close, is there any other points or anything else you'd like to add to our discussion today? Sure. I would just say that the work I do, I tend to work with these large data sets, and they have the benefit of being nationally representative. They have the benefit of being able to draw in a lot of information and try to assess associations and ideally causality. But in a lot of ways, they're limited, and so I can't see certain things. And I think social workers, both those involved in the policy realm, particularly those involved with clients, have sources of information that 
they should never discount. So I try to spend a certain amount of my time on working with direct service providers and working with very vulnerable populations. But I look forward to any of our listeners who have experience with the program, have insights into the program. I would love to hear from them and see what they think about the validity of these findings. Does this sort of match with their experience? And I think that's a very valuable thing that they can offer those of us who tend to work with big data and sometimes lose track of what these things mean in the lives of real people. Uh, Yes, I agree. I want to thank you for your time today, Luke. It's been an interesting conversation, and hopefully as you develop your research more, we can talk again about some of the other things that you've discovered in your research. Sure, I'd be glad to. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Dr. Luke Schaefer discuss the SNAP program on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.